Welcome back, listeners. So hopefully by now you've noticed the new artwork, the new logo design, and if you pop over to our Instagram page, all the new content that's up. So if you want to be a good friend, subscribe, download, follow, like, all of the things. Help us out so that we can continue to bring bigger and better content. Thanks for sticking with us so far. And with that shameless self-promotion over, welcome back to Native Tongues. This week on the pod, we've got writer, director, producer, script consultant, and soon-to-be podcaster. His newest movie, Last Night at Terrace Lanes, just dropped a couple weeks ago and can be found on all major streaming platforms. Let's welcome filmmaker Jamie Nash. Hey there. Hey. hey. I'm back. back. All good? All good. All good. Yeah. Welcome all right. back. Welcome back. Now we got a license. That's all right. Go talk Nailed to it. lawyers. Talk yeah, to right. lawyers. I'm on it. <laughs> awesome. How are you today? I'm doing good. How about you? Yeah. I am okay. I was just telling Ken I had to pick up my son from school earlier. So he's just sick, sick or something. Yeah. Yeah. So he's hanging out, playing upstairs. That's kind of why I got my phone just in case school calls or something. Just That's case. always a good move. Yeah. Just have it, have it nearby. As a parent, when your kid's at like daycare or whatever, that's the worst. When you get the daycare call in the middle of the day and you're like, there's a reason I'm yeah, there at daycare because I'm working and doing whatever, <laughs> you know, and you yeah. get that call and you're like, ah, all right, here we go. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my son's special needs. So mm-hmm. his calls are usually a little scary. Uh, they're Uh-oh. usually like he's banging his head against the wall or something. And gotcha. so whenever Howard County public schools pops up on my, my heart sinks. And yeah. 90% of the time, it's just like, oh, we have a meeting on Friday or something like that. You know, it's usually <laughs> not something horrible, but literally I get to a, oh, no, you know, and then yeah, it's, like, totally. oh, it's okay. Yeah, less oh, yeah, we'll wait and see for you. Yeah, yeah. So it's always kind of a scary thing. And, yeah. and, and the reason I go and find my phone, like, I better have my phone near me in case they call, even though they rarely call. So it's all gotcha. Right. Yeah, smart to do. Is yeah. that a final draft hat you're wearing? It is a final draft hat. Yes, I have that icon uh, on the bottom of my computer right now. <laughs> yep. Um, that I met with the final draft people in Austin one year, and they gave me a hat. It's a nice huh? hat too. They they have they had nice swag. I have a nice. shirt. I have a shirt and a hat. Okay. Was that South by Southwest or? Uh, no, the Austin Film Festival. Oh, cool. Or the, it's really a screenwriting festival. They do their their film festival and their screenwriting festival at the same time. It's kind of like a convention. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, AFF. I've never been down to that. Is it any good? AFF, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, it's so when I first started my screenwriting career, I went there and I loved, loved, loved it. And then I went back there like last year or something, and it felt exactly the same like 20 years later. And it was oh. it was kind of weird, but <laughs> yeah. at the same time, it's super cool and super inspiring uh to go there. I, I actually highly recommend it for people. Yeah, I've considered it a few times. It's funny the the going back to a place like that, you know, one of those you, know, you can't go home again things. But like, for example, we talked, you know, we've had a, another guest from Austin, you know, and talked about the changes there, and we've mm-hmm. talked about it. Just Aaron and I could both love the city and all that. 
it's kind of cool to hear somebody say, no, it's kind of the same when I went back or the experience was the same because I feel like everything just gets more commercialized, more sensationalized, all that stuff. And to say you go, went back and you're like, actually, it kind of felt like I was in the same place. It's it's funny that you say that because it was a mix of both feelings. Like it definitely was bigger and it felt like more of a machine and less homegrown. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the nuts and bolts of it, I hung out at the same bar. I kind of went to the same type of, you know, you go and sit and hear I don't know, Peter Berg talk or something. And it's kind of the oh, wow. same. The schedule's roughly the same. The, the events are roughly the same. Um, it really did feel the same. That's uh, cool. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Hmm. But I, I recommend it. Okay. Ken, we're going. Yes. On it. I'm actually already there. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, Jamie, I want to uh, ask about your background and hear some of your stories. But I just want to let you know, I watched last night at I'm drawing a total blank here. I, I just watched the movie last night. L last night at what was it? Uh, Soho? Uh, no. The, uh, the, oh yeah, right. I, the I kept getting Wright, confused with that. Yeah, one the too. Edgar Wright movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, last night in Soho. Is that something like that? Was yeah, that, that was good too. Yeah, that's a good. Um, one. But no, your movie. Cool. What do you think? Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I have some notes. Is it locked in? Uh, we we'll probably uh you know do a 20 year anniversary. So okay, you can... good. I'll send them over then. We'll, we'll, we'll re-edit it then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. It was fun. Uh, the director's hack podcast uh, hosts edition. It'll be yeah, very big be, on the on the box set. That'd be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I like that it wastes no time getting into it. No, mostly because of budgetary reasons. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You know, we, it, it gets to the we, point. We, it's lean. Yeah, we only have 10 days to shoot pretty much. Oh, you got kidding. Yeah, use everything and do it short. <laughs> That's the only way to make it work. Cause yeah. you know, 75 minutes, 10 days, you can do the math of how many pages you have to get. And then mm -hmm. in particular with that one, lots of stunts and extras and all kinds of stuff to coordinate. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, uh, it was fast and also not a lot of pre-production time. Like the other thing you can do when you have a movie that's only 75 minutes, if you have like a year of pre-production time, you can just plan it out to the last detail, you know, so you know exactly yeah. where the lights are going and you know how many people are there and you know whatever you rehearse and do all this other stuff. In our case, it was like, you know, I found out about that project like on June 1st and uh -huh. the bowling alley was going to be torn down on like August 1st. So that's what I was going to say. You don't exactly have because they were tearing the building down, right? That's that's right. That's right. It was a script written between then there was a cast, you know, the whole cast, everybody hired, business entities built, you know, movie shot, everything no all, by, wow. all by like August 1st. So, you know, th and that, that's the cool part. I, actually, that was the fun about it because it was like, um, yeah, it was all that, you know, I mean, you didn't have to worry about all the other stuff that comes in between. You were just on the train and the train was in full motion. It's and going. You, could, so. you couldn't look around. Yeah, it was like going to go. So that was the fun part about that shoot. I'd do it again. I'd love to do it again. Something like that. Yeah. Do you work better like that? Or are you uh, uh, like a meticulous planner? Do you storyboard? Um, I, I, I'm more of a planner, uh, to be honest. But um, I like the experience. But honestly, I, I, I'm i a planner. I'm, you know, I'm a screenwriter. So I like to like noodle around with the script and stuff for ages and ages and months and months and get it all yeah. perfect and then go do it. So it's a bit of a different experience. But but I would, like I said, I'd do it again. I, I think it's fun. I think there's value in in that kind of speed because it's kind of what all directing always is, is kind of like that. You have to just make a decision mm -hmm. and not really second guess it because 
you got to do it on the spot because there's reasons, there's deadlines. Yeah. Um, so this is just kind of the microcosm of that. It's just like a, in the microwave in some ways, you're just flying through it. How did that come together? So was that a somebody had a log line or somebody had the space or it was? It's, it's all of the above. There's There was a guy locally who I've worked with before, um, Carlo Glorioso. And uh, him and his partner, Corey, and Eduardo Sanchez is part of their team. Um, hmm. they were, they were making movies with this company called Epic Pictures. Um, it's Dread Central, the website, but they have a film branch hmm. called Epic hmm. Dread, Dread Epic or something like that. And they were looking for movies to make with them. Like they, they had a limit, you know, low budget things. These are super low budget movies. And they, Carlo, who's connected to Frederick, he saw the bowling alley was, you know, he, he negotiated the bowling alley and they had had their final night party the last night at Terrace Lane's real party, like maybe the week before he called me. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's how fresh wow. it was. Like they had had there's no no serial killers or cultists attacked that party. So the bowling alley had just closed down. It's a success. Uh, exactly. They, they had a financier on hand and they wrote a one sheet. Basically, it was like a one page that relatively was like what the movie is, except. I mean, really, it just said a girl goes on a date. Her father is there. I, I think her, I can't remember if her father was the maintenance guy or anything. And then these cultists attack and hijinks ensue. And that's basically what the, <laughs> what the one sheet said. And they, yeah. they sent that to Epic and Epic said, okay, we'll, we'll finance this. This sounds great. And they were like, yeah, get it done in time. So that, that's kind of how it came together. And then they called me and they were like, Hey, here's the problem. It's going to be. You know, it's we got to get a ton in like a month and a half. And <laughs> lucky for me, I don't think a lot of directors would be like jumping on board. I don't have anything to do for two months. Let's go. You know, right. so Can you just commit to this for for the next two months of your entire summer. Just yeah, doing right. this. So what I lack in talent, I make up for an availability. Mm. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I say that's your best ability, availability. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that was a large part of my hiring on that project. It was fun. My uh, my wife and I, or my wife sort of pointed me towards it, but we both read this book, which is The Last Night at, Re- at the Red Lobster. Oh, um, I'm probably cool. botching the title a little bit. But uh, so I had worked at Red Lobster uh, in my, my summers off from college. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of whatever. And it was not nearly as entertaining as that sounds. Like the book is literally like it's a character study. And if you probably, if you worked at Red Lobster, that's their target audience, I guess, because there were definitely some nostalgic moments for me. Was that what it was about? Was something the last night that they worked there? It is literally, they're shutting down the Red Lobster in the the town. And it's the people, the manager and the, you know, the random uh, waitress who comes in and who's going to go with them to the macaroni grill. Um, And that, and there's a big snowstorm kind (laughs) of thing going around there. Yes, it is. It is. And you're, I kept waiting for the twist to be like, right. oh, no, they're going to. No, they're just mutant lobsters or something. Kind of did not did not come in. <laughs> the lobsters finally get the revenge. Nobody died. There were there were no clowns. Uh, yeah, it was it was. Yeah. So That's it's not a, somewhat disappointing in that way. Missed opportunity. I, sure. I got to the end. It's a, it's a small book, but I, I got to the end. and I was like, well. I don't know if I'm a better person for having read that. I feel like maybe my brain needs something that's <laughs> no. like just, you know. Now, here's the thing, though. Was it authentic to your Red Lobster experience? Do you feel like the person actually I, worked there? I could. Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. 100%. That's what I That's said. Good. I think I think I knew who their sweet spot target was and it okay. was Red Lobster employees. Well, I I mean, I appreciate that. I think I think I know I read a lot of scripts like I I consult on a lot of scripts. 
And whenever I feel that sense of authenticity, especially now, because especially in screenwriting and screenwriting, you get a lot of people that are like, zombie movies are hot. I'm going to write a zombie movie, you know, and there's like no, sometimes there's a passion for it and that shows, but there, there tends to be no, like, I don't know, lived value to it or kind of grit to it or something like that. So when I read something like, it sounds like last night at Mm -hmm. Red Lobster might've been right. I have a great appreciation for that. Um, no, I still like it to have a good plot and a twist and stuff like that. I think, right. you know, it needs to have all of it, but at least it had one thing going for it. <laughs> it, it, it. It definitely did. I love how you're like, I really look for authenticity and, and clown vampires. And clown yes. vampires. I like the, the, the two mixed together. Is yes, what I'm indeed. For. indeed. Yeah. But, I, I, but I get what you're getting at, which is basically if you can create a good character that people go, yeah, that feels like real. That's that a, that's a real, real story of real things. And yeah, and the, the story was fun. It was a good little story. It's just, you know, when you go from bigger, you know, you're reading those to, to this little novel, that's just a character study kind of in how people, you know, adjust to massive change in their lives, I guess. Yeah. Sounds like a nineties Sundance movie. That yeah. Yeah. You heard definitely. about it. Absolutely. <laughs> Sun comes up at the end. Yeah. And they're all staring at each other, rubbing their faces going, all right, well. And and you would it. have had to see it at like an art house cinema. Like it wouldn't have even come on right. HBO or anything. It would have just and been right. like maybe you house. went to Red Lobster <laughs> before that. I don't know. That's right. That's right. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. I like that. You didn't stick to just the last night at the bowling alley where everyone shines the balls and looks at each other. You know? <laughs> That's a little right. diehard. It was a little uh, green room, which is one of my favorites. Maybe in the edit, though, we'll we'll go back to that version. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot more talking. More <laughs> my dinner at Andre. 20th anniversary. We can add those <laughs> scenes back in. The, the actors will be a little older for the pickups, but we'll figure yeah, it we'll, out. We'll figure right, it we'll, out. We'll hire some new kids. It'll be yeah. AI software. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be AI. The, you won't That's, even need a bowling alley. No, that's true. I mean, I honestly think you will. I've thought about this. Like, let's say we made a movie like last night, Terrace Lanes. I think we'll be able to dump our actors in and say, now add a spaceship and it'll just do it. It'll figure mm. it out. You know? Yeah. So yeah. where does that make sense in the story? Got it. No problem. Take yeah, no problem. You, you figured <laughs> that out. All right. Let's do this again, but without any murder and mayhem and make it great. You know, you know, yeah. now to be honest, you could probably dump last night a red lobster into Chat GPT and say, that, rewrite Oh my it gosh, rewrite zombies. it as a horror movie. Yes, yeah. And exactly. it would probably just pop out the, the book right. I want to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, that's where I'm headed next. Much <laughs> more fun. <laughs> it's actually going to be the second night of the red lobster. Was, this <laughs> is right. the prequel that led to the demise ultimately. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that nobody referenced. The clown vampires that nobody referenced at all in the <laughs> the last book. Nobody mentioned that at all, that that had happened, and that's why they're closing. But One more last night. Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the laster, laster night. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Eduardo Sanchez a minute ago, and Ken, I don't know if you know that it is. And Yeah, Blair Witch Project, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. is, is yeah. The, the big fame, right? Sure. And he's gone on to many other things, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen his name pop up in a lot of indies. I mean, I'm guessing you know him. Is that where he has stuck around? Uh, so here's the thing about him that's interesting. Every movie he's made since Blair, at least feature-wise, I w- I've been in some way involved in. either Most huh. of them I've written. A couple of them I've produced. But they're more the anthology stuff. And uh, so I've worked with him for a long time. However, where he really has made his kind of name or reinvented himself or really blown blown it out of the park in some ways mm-hmm. is tv uh he does a lot of tv directing mm. he's done 
uh yellow jackets he, he did oh, i, I remember it was one last year um he did like a star trek episode he's done you know he's done lots of television stuff and he does like five or six a year probably for the last six years or so, maybe even longer than that now so he's done many 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 tv credits and is constantly doing new tv shows I mean, um, if you're any good if you're a hired gun for that sort of stuff i mean there's so much out there i'm sure you can jump into it's it's a great great gig not that i've ever done it but i just looking at it from the outside in in my opinion there's no better gig in some ways i mean i'm sure he gets and i know he gets frustrated not frustrated that's the wrong word but i know he longs to do like original kind of material and stuff but there's nothing better than just you know you go in episode 27 or something or episode six um the writers and everybody have already made the key decisions for you. I mean, they have all the mm-hmm. decision making and you just kind of go there and say, action, cut, you know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's more to <laughs> there's it. There's more that. to it, I'm sure. But yeah. Yeah. But oh, yeah. In a large part, you can't make any crazy decisions. That's for the producers and the writers to make. The look has already been established. You don't have the pressure of of coming up with that next amazing whatever. I, not thing. at all. Not at all. In fact, the pressure is probably the opposite. The pressure is keep it the same. You know, mm. get through the day. Get through the day is probably, I've never really talked to him about this, but my gut says that's probably the most important thing is get through the day. Because if you can't get through the day, we're going to hire right. somebody else next time. Right. Hit the marks. <laughs> but yeah, he can't really, he can kind of make suggestions. He gets some pre-production time. But he can't really sit there and be like, on the day of, why don't we do this with a crane shot or, you know, something. It's like, no, 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 that's not the way the show is. Or or why don't we do this with a completely different look? You know, we'll handheld. It's like, no, we already established. We use dollies. We use steadicams, you know. So a lot of what he does is more keeping on track. And again, I'm I'm kind of speaking for him because I've never actually had this conversation with him. But keeping the day on track, keeping the show on track, keeping the story on track. It's kind of a, it's like the difference between a, a football quarterback who's a game manager, the Brock Purdy of it all, right. and the Lamar Jackson of it all. I think, yeah. I think you got to be more Brock Purdy if you're in the TV game, right? But, but in some sense, it's like here's the playbook, go execute it. Just be really good at doing this. That's you right. Don't, you don't That's have right. the pressure of now, now come save the ship. You know, that, or, or, exactly, exactly, or or invent the ship, or figure out how to you know how to yeah. do this thing, like you know, from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, it's surprising. I only brought him up because Blair Witch is not one of the highest grossing, but one of the I mean, it's one of the most profitable movies ever made. Right. That's right. That's right. It, for for okay. a long time, I think it may have been. I mean, every now and then I'll read some other thing and I'll be like, oh, that's the most profitable. But mm-hmm. honestly, if you know the the litmus test and this is something for Terrace Lanes like that, I always point out to people. I'm like, name a movie that, you know, that's under a hundred thousand dollars. And, and Blair Witch is 25. I mean, I know they spent more in yeah. the mix and stuff like that afterwards, but the reality of it, the bones of that movie is like $25,000, $26,000. Can you name another movie that's $26,000? That anyone's heard of. Some of us, some of us movie right. files can. Like, well, we might say Clerks or something like that. Sure, right. Um, I'm a big Clerks fan. That was actually the only one I was thinking. That was the only place I was going to go. It was like <laughs> something Kevin Smith's financing it on credit cards. and Yeah, El yeah. Mariachi might be another one oh, that yeah. people know. Um. And that was like $5,000 or something. That's that was crazy. Nuts. And that was sh- shot on film for like $5,000. Again, though, to release it, they spent like $200,000 to mix and make a print and color correct and do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's questionable how you, you know, say what the budget is. Primer is another one people have seen oh, yeah. that people think of. 
um, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. Uh, that might have been a 50s. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you've seen Terrace Lane, so you can add another yes. one to the list. Um, maybe a little bit more money than the rest of those, but not right. much, um, but close. So in that sense, that's why it made $150 million domestically um, on like $20,000. So. Right. Definitely one of the most profitable. And then Paranormal Activity came and beat it a few years later. Yeah. Because right. it was made for about the same budget, but made even more money. It made like mm-hmm. 300 million or something like that. Yeah. But it was definitely on the back of Blair Witch. Oh, oh no doubt. And it's no doubt. crazy. You know, that time and place, I mean, obviously it gave him a long career if he's still working. But I feel like if that were to happen now, if there was a breakout film like that, he would be the next you know, Jurassic Park director or yeah. launched into some tentpole movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, different era, but I think you're right. Cause like the Colin Trevorrow's, yeah. uh, the Gareth Edwards, the people like that, they were kind of launched Um, Adam Wingard and the Kong movies, you know, they kind of start independent. They move ahead back then where he was, you know, I've talked, I have talked to him about this. They got offered all the horror movies, you know, they came to him and they were like, no, they weren't, blockbusters like they are now because they didn't make as many movies for 100 million 200 million you know so they got like hey you want to do freddy versus jason or something like that Mm -hmm. they get do you want to do the next exorcist sequel do you want to do that but back then i'd say it wasn't cool like guys like him were like more like the tarantino days or the soderbergs or something Mm -hmm. and they're like well that's cool but we're having our own career here we want to make our own movies right yeah and that's what they wanted to do. And they they kind of went down a path with like their own movies. And it just didn't really happen the way they hoped. Yeah. And then he kind of had to reinvent himself in some ways. Like when he met me, he was almost reinventing himself. And it totally worked out for him through persistence and battle. And he almost had to re-break in in some ways to get the television stuff going. But it, you know, and, and the lesson he learned, uh, honestly, I think like after 10 years, he was like, Damn, I wish I took Freddy versus Jason. You know what <laughs> no, I mean? I wish I I wish yeah, I right. did the exorcism because they never came back to him, you know, to do him until yeah. the television thing years later. I think he always thought, well, I could try my own thing. And then like right. 10 years from now, I can do Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, it seems like a very uh I mean, and this is in most industries too, but particularly in the entertainment industry, like what have you done for me lately? Yeah, yeah. And I I, I honestly I think he should take this is something I always think about myself, but I think a guy like him should take great pride in the fact that he had that down and then he's he came back as hot and he stayed with it and came back because he really did have this huge break and then it kind of went away by the time he got to me. Otherwise, I would be much more right. famous because our movies would be big hits. Um, yeah. And then he had to kind of come at it again to put himself at the top of the industry. And it I mean, from somebody like me looking at that from the outside in, it's really, really impressive. Like even more so than in some ways than Colin Trevorrow making a movie and then getting promoted right on the heat of that movie. Yeah. It, you know, to have it go away and then fight your way back is, is pretty, it speaks to talent. In an industry like that, I mean, it's like to, to get two bites at the apple it yeah. is, and to really slog at and work there's a lot of baggage uh when you don't they're like well why haven't you done all these big famous things since the Blair Witch you know there's a lot of baggage that comes with that so to Mm. keep fighting and not give up and and then actually make it through it yeah it's it's actually um it's a it's kind of an interesting tale it's the type of tale that doesn't really get told and you don't see too often in Hollywood because usually they just kind of 
fade away or something. Yeah, like right. That. But, but he kept when fighting. Director yeah. jail. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely what happens. Cool. Well, this has been fun talking about Eduardo Sanchez. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. No problem. <laughs> no, uh, let's hear your story. I've got a bunch of questions about your scripts and where they've gone, but bring us up to speed. I, I think you should bring Ed, Ed on to talk about me next. But yeah. <laughs> yes. That's actually, that's Perfect. our noon. Yeah. That's our so, noon <laughs> appointment. That's right. So just have people come on and talk about yeah. other people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, did, was there a question mixed in there? My scripts and where they've gone. I don't no. Know. Yeah. Uh, well, there was meandering. To, there was a lot of meandering. Um, <laughs> if you can pull a question out of there, then, right. you know, go at it. I, uh, sure no, what's your start? Where did you begin? How much did you write when you were younger? What led you to the screenwriting specifically? And you seem to fall in the thriller horror camp. So was that mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. the trajectory? Yeah, yeah. Um, I so I was like a lot of kids my age, including Eduardo Sanchez. Star Wars was the big like mind blower for me as a kid, mm-hmm. and it's almost hard. It's like the Big Bang for a lot of people of my age. Like it's like before and after Star Wars. It's like because that and honestly, there was a before Star Wars. Like I was into Spider Man comics and cartoons and Adam West Batman and all kinds of other stuff before Star Wars came out. But and and probably James Bond a little bit because my dad loved James Bond. But when Star Wars came out, it was all encompassing because it it kind of opened the door to science fiction and fantasy and all that kind of stuff. And it also was more than just a movie. There were books, there were comic books, there were action figures, there were all. So it was like, yeah. I mean, we we had trading cards that we traded in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we just kept going back and seeing the movie over and over again, and it, it was huge as a kid. So I, I don't really know the ways that movie affected me. I can't say that that movie was why I write screenplays specifically, because then there, there were a lot of other lessons. Um, I always say that when Raiders came out years later, um, not too many years later, but it felt like a long time because mm-hmm. I was like a really little kid. You know, yeah. I was like I was like six when Star Wars came out or something or five. And then when Raiders came out, I was you know getting closer to a preteen or something. And when Raiders came out, I started to realize, oh, the same people that made these things combined and made this other thing, you know, because I knew Jaws. What's the, I, I, why can't I remember? Um, what was Spielberg's comedy? The one that. 1941. 1941. I saw 1941 in the theater, you know. So the, the guy who made 1941 made this movie with uh, George Lucas. So I, and I, and look, uh, Harrison Ford's in it. And. Mm-hmm. So I started to think of George Lucas as a writer in some ways, like, he, you know, even though he, because I think he might've gotten story by or something on Raiders, but I knew he was kind of the producer story guy yeah. and Spielberg as the director. And I started to see those kind of credits. And I think that that did have an influence on me and started to push me to look at who's making things and what are they making and stuff like that. I did read a lot as a kid. Um, I read a lot of like Stephen King as a little kid. So did we. Everybody, everybody we talked to read Stephen King. <laughs> I, Dean Arcoots was the other guy I read. Mm, and oh, I, yeah. I, I actually I found Dean Arcoots kind of more accessible than Stephen King. They were more page turners. They were fast paced. They were really, mm-hmm. and I think his books actually had a lot of influence on my writing later on in life because I, I would read his and they'd start out with like a chapter just of dialogue. You know, and it, like no, nothing but dialogue. And it was just boom, 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 boom. And I was just like, oh, you can do this. And then I started to rip them off. Like when I was doing short stories, I'd start yeah. my story with dialogue and it would just be boom, 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 dialogue. 
And honestly, I think he probably had in some ways more influence on my style and stuff than, than King did. But hmm. then I read Clive Barker. I was a big Clive Barker guy. Um, Clive Barker had a lot of influence on my concepts at the time because he was going to weird places. Yeah, um, yeah. I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. That was coming out when I was a kid. So I was probably d20 die i'm i'm my son has discovered dungeons and dragons and i'm inundated i'm literally on a table right now with i have miniature trees okay that's all kinds of things and and all that stuff we didn't have cool stuff like that but it was when DD was first kind of making its way into the suburbs probably in the in the very very early 80s and none of us really knew how to play we kind of pretended it was like fake it till you make it you know like we had some (laughs) of the books but we didn't have all the books like we'd have have the dungeon master guide and a screen and character sheets but and the monster manual but we wouldn't have the player's handbook and this and that and we kind of made it up <laughs> and um we played for many years but that definitely and i i quickly realized i only wanted to be the dungeon master i wanted to tell the story i didn't like being on the other side it bored me you know i just wanted to make hmm. up stuff okay um it spoke to my pre-planning yeah and then and then this is the long-winded way of saying so all of that went into a jumble I tried writing, but at the time we only had typewriters and it, it honestly, that screwed me up. Like I hated typewriters. Really? I was like checking away. Yeah. I just, I made so many mistakes and it didn't look right. And I, that was constantly up in my room on a typewriter trying to write a story and just couldn't get beyond the first couple of pages because of typewriters, you know, the ribbons and the, the, and I know I did, I wrote some short stories in high school and it was one of the only things I'd say I felt like. I was instinctively good at like nothing else like sports, not instinctively good. I fought my way through like playing basketball because I was six foot five. I fought my way through playing baseball and striking out all the time. And I liked playing sports school. I wasn't too great at, but the one thing I was instinctually like best in the class at was writing stories. Like when it was time Mm -hmm. to write a story, I think it was all those Dean R. Koontz ripoff things I was doing. You know what I mean? I was, I just had all these ideas like, oh, I can grab them in the first sentence. I can start with a quote. I can start with dialogue. So I had a lot of energy to my writing and I could feel it. I was like, I'm better than everybody else at this. That said, when I went to college, I went for computer science. So yeah. And, and it worked out well. (laughs) Yeah, I took every writing class and film class I could take because I, at that point, I think I thought I was going to make movies, like shorts and stuff like that. Not not features or anything, but just make a short. I just want to make a short. And I did that. But then, this is the longest story. My my story is always long about writing because I, I haven't really figured out the compact version of it. So I became a computer programmer, made good money. And somewhere along the lines, the internet showed up. And that's when I started to do screenwriting. <laughs> because there was a lot of information available. And it was at my fingertips. I could get final draft. I could, mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew what it was. I knew there was a thing that existed called final draft. And there was at the time in the late nineties, Francis Ford Coppola had made a site called American Zoetrope. And it was key to my development in screenwriting. I would go on this site. It was basically a trade for reviews site. So you would post your PDF. If you read three other PDFs, you could post your own. And then you would get reviews from from other people and it became a destination it became a goal uh it wasn't just writing to write i was writing to put it on there and see if i did better and then rewrite and see if i did better and it was kind of like a little game of sorts and yeah, and through, i think through that is really 
would start to snowball or put the addiction in me or get, give me the dopamine hits mm-hmm. that, that made writing a regular habit and made writing um, something more than just like, maybe I can do this. Cause now I suddenly I had three scripts under my belt and I was like, Oh, I you also have this. an avenue to get it out. Right. Yes. So it's like, cause you know, so uh, to use a programming analogy, actually I've sort of went a different the reverse path. I was a creative guy and now I'm a programmer. Okay. But okay. the, uh, but you know, I'm, I think, I think I'm heading back that way. <laughs> <laughs> you can learn the skills. The internet is, is, is still there. It's good for you. Okay, good. Uh, but you can learn the skills, but if you're not, if there's no outlet for it. If there's no product and, mm-hmm. and a place to put that product, you lose mm-hmm. the skills, you lose the interest and it just, it, it sort of fades. You can, you can do it. But if you're not if you're not doing it with a purpose and not doing it with an with an audience, you're losing. Yeah, you're working so, in a void. Yeah, and to be able to now be able to say I'm going to write this and I'm going to put it out there, and now that becomes at least a a an immediate goal. I I've been a, a a writers group regular for years as well. Like now it's more for novels. It's usually not for screenplays. But when I write novels and prose and short stories, I I usually am part of writers groups, um, and it's something it's for similar reasons. I just have a reason to write something that month, you know, otherwise I probably wouldn't do it. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't have a publishing deal. I don't have like a big time agent that's waiting on my next book. I'm really just doing it to do it in speculation that maybe one day I'll sell it, but odds are I might not, I might have to self-publish it or something, but I think self-publishing is kind of a positive in that. Like if I had self-publishing back in the nineties, <laughs> I probably would have went down that route. I probably would have been like, well, at least I can self-publish, you know, yeah. maybe 10 people will read it, but at least I'm putting it out there. At least there's some concrete value yeah. in it. We've talked to a few self-publishers and there's a gigantic market for that now and a whole network too, where, sure, you know, sure. everyone's trying to lift each other up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what the publishing contracts are these days and how they get you to, it, it almost doesn't make sense to go the traditional route anymore because it's just so hard to make money at it. Or, or you know, it's hard to break in, and then once you break in, you make very little money at it. Right, it's, it's hard to make a living. So I get it. So you made a uh, a short, and then when did you sell your first screenplay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I sold. So when I first got into screenwriting, in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm going to make these movies. I'm going to be Kevin Smith. I'm going to be Blair Witch Project. That's that was the reason I was. I was around that yeah. era. So for the most part, I was writing things, thinking I was going to make them. I quickly realized I was writing things that I was writing Star Wars and you know, <laughs> Kevin Smith didn't write Star Wars. It just wouldn't have looked as good on a $25,000 budget. I was just about to ask if that was almost limiting because you're like, well, how, how am I going to you know, shoot that in space or I don't have access to a three-headed dragon. So Yeah, yeah. My, my first script, in fact, was I because the other thing I skipped over in my long story is I think I started to look for other creative outlets. So I did theater a little bit. I was a juggler for many years. I was mm. like a street performer and I was an improver. My first script was about a juggler at the Renaissance Festival. That was the first script I wrote. And it was clerks at a Renaissance Festival. Nice. Um, and in the back of my head, I was like, I can make this. But clerks at a Renaissance Festival is so much more expensive than clerks. You know, it's it, like <laughs> a lot of extras. It had a lot of extras, costumes. I had fight scenes. I had, you know, I had all kind, I had a lot of D&D kind of stuff going on. And it was crazy and wild. So that script was a finalist at the Austin Film Festival, my first script. And it was a, it became a finalist. So I went to Austin and I got in all these special roundtables and I met like 
all these people that I kind of thought I wanted to be like, like the writer of Galaxy Quest was hanging out with me at the bar and Shane Black was there and Scott Rosenberg was there and all these really, you know, people I looked at, I said, I could do this. I could, these guys are cool. I could be like them. So then 10 scripts later, <laughs> this is kind of <laughs> like really nothing happened for the next 10 scripts. So I, yeah. my first one right out of the gate, I was like, oh, I can do this. Still doing computer science at the same time, still doing programming. Um, 10 scripts later, I wrote, I, it was my first non-comedy. I, I, the first script, I was like, I'm going to write the kind of movies I love or I want to see. It was the first one I did it. And it was about a magician in the Old West who these outlaws come and they say, we need somebody broken out of this prison. And they blackmail him to do it. And he's mm. kind of like a Houdini character. So yeah. he's like a, mm. it's like a superhero story set in the Old West, essentially, right? So still thinking on a budget, clearly. Absolutely. It was super. So, so I was a juggler and I was also a magician. So I knew a lot about magic. And I, so I put all that into the script and stuff like that. And for some wild reason, and that script, everybody who ever read that script liked it. That, that was one of the first scripts that people read and liked, but no studios or anything wanted to do a Western. They were like, we're not doing a Western. That's not mm. going to happen. Even yeah. though this one to me, in my head, this was more Indiana Jones than the Western. Set, you know, set in yeah. the West, but it's it was not set a... in the West. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't pulling any guns out of his holster or anything like that. He was doing card tricks or throwing cards, you know, throwing cards at people and hitting them in the <laughs> eye or whatever stupid thing I had. So I had a independent producer who had no business making a Western <laughs> option that script for ten thousand dollars for one year. Wow. Um, thinking he was going to make it. And then he renewed it for another $10,000, like a year later. Okay. That was that was my first sale. My first kind of real sale was a movie with Eduardo Sanchez. It probably happened maybe two years after that. And it was a movie that ended up being called Altered. It was originally a script I wrote called Probed that I wanted to make myself. And, you know, I was going to shoot myself. And Universal bought it up with Ed attached and the whole project. And, you know, it was a six-figure deal by the end of the day. So mm. it was real money. That's awesome. It was before the DVD market crashed. It was right before. So nowadays, like something like that movie wouldn't happen. But back then it was, I wouldn't say it was common, but it was the path. It was like the path that these companies would give you, you know, they'd buy a movie like this because they could just print DVDs, send them out to Blockbuster and almost make their money back. You know, it was mm. like, it was like they could sell enough DVDs that their money would come back. It's almost subsidized by the rental places, right? So it's like absolutely you have a deal and blockbuster, all the little mom and pop video shops are all gonna all all the mom and pops, but then also all the best best buys and stuff like that would sell a bunch of DVDs. Sure. And then and then right around that time, that market just went away completely. And that's when the film industry really changed. It it became that's kind of when we ended up in the superhero blockbuster, you know, mm -hmm. all or nothing kind of world instead of like oh, we can make a movie for $20 million and make our money back because, or at least break even, because we'll sell it international, we'll sell it to Blockbuster, we'll sell it to Best Buy. And it, it was probably a year before that, that change. So in particular, that movie, it kind of got buried. Like they, it came out, they didn't do any promotion. I don't even think they put a trailer on their other movies. Like, you know, normally at least they just dump a trailer. What happened was, if I'm remembering all this right, there was a company called Rogue Pictures that was part of Universal. And they were, I think, focus features split off. You know, Dimension and Miramax kind of had mm -hmm. Splinter. Yeah. So Universal had similar. It was Seamus and Lindy ran 
wrote pictures. Seamus and Lindy were the guys who wrote all Ang Lee's movies and stuff like Mm. that. But they became these producers. They were producers and writers, and they ran the company. Right around the time, they bought Alter. They were like, we love this movie. We want to do it. This is great. We're going to give you the money. We're going to make it. We're going to buy it. In between making it and releasing it, they left. And somebody new came in and they uh, looked no. at it and they were like, we don't want to, uh, no, we're just, what are we doing with this? <laughs> we'll dump this. And the only ad I ever saw for it was in like a Best Buy circular. Oh man. That was it. I saw one. I was like, oh, there it is. My movie. I got an ad. That's cool. But it was in a Best Buy circular. <laughs> and to this day, people find that movie and they're like, I've never heard of this movie. And it's, and, and people, there's a certain cult of people that really, really like that movie because it's, there's a lot of love in it. There's a lot of passion. It's not, it wasn't for us like a dump. It was actually, we took it very seriously and made it, you know, very, very carefully and seriously. Like it wasn't made for the money really at all. It was made like, oh, this is going to blow people's minds. We're going to do this movie. And, and when people watch it, I think they, they sense that. I think they're like, how do I not know this movie? You know, I think people (laughs) have that reaction to it. But it has a larger, if you were to watch it, and I'm going to, I just wrote it to make sure that I do. Uh, yeah. But does it feel like it has a bigger budget than what it would allow the market, you know what I mean, to say, oh, my gosh, somebody really invested in this, you know, compared to where you're going to find it? Yeah, so I think that's it. I think most of the movies you've never heard of, they're usually super low budget. Now, mm-hmm. this movie wasn't expensive. It was like $6 million or something mm-hmm. to make, mm-hmm. but it's contained. So it, it's it's a contained movie. So the $6 million goes on screen. Gotcha. And it has some alien effect. It's an alien movie. It's basically the pitch was. Instead of UFOs kidnapping rednecks, a bunch of rednecks abduct an alien, and then hijinks ensue. And um, it started as a horror comedy, but ended up being more like when Ed got involved, he didn't want to do the broad version I wrote. He, I wrote a very broad, like slapsticky, wild yeah. Peter Jackson kind of movie. Yeah. And we kind of scaled that back into something that's tonally realistic, but very quirky, very yeah. unusual, very strange. Is it partly in a garage? It is. It is partly in a garage. Yeah, I did see this movie. Okay, so it's um, it's shot on film, and there is a group of people that did it called Spectral Motion, who, who we knew. Um, the Blair Witch guys knew David Goyer very well from uh, Freaky Links, and David Goyer had worked with Del Toro and stuff like that, and he knew this company called Spectral Motion, and Spectral Motion did the alien effects for our movie. Mm. They were like the ones that do Hellboy and all these. Like, if you want a practical oh, wow. suit, they were your guys. That's a big um, deal. They, they also worked on Exist. They did the Bigfoot for Exist. So mm-hmm. we we kind of got in with them because of Goyer, because of Del Toro and stuff like that. So anyway, when people see it, I think they're like, oh, this is this movie. I don't know how I don't know this movie. So especially like big like horror podcasts and stuff will discover it. Mm. And they'll be like, whoa, I've never seen. What is this? I can't believe this. Why have I never seen it? And the reason you've never seen it is because it was completely dumped to a Best Buy. And unless you <laughs> saw that flyer, you would have never even heard of it. It was like no promotion at all. It just kind of came out and went. So that was your first big thing, right? That was my first thing that I got paid enough that maybe I could quit my day job. I didn't quit my day job at that point. <laughs> but yeah. but it, was, it was an option. It was on the table. People would come to me and say, why haven't you quit your day job? But And at the time, I was working from home. So I, I, worked, for, uh, I worked for Citigroup at the time as a consultant. So I was able to work from home. And as long as I got my work done and stayed ahead of all the worker bees, I would write all day. So it was a great, and this is something I take to this day. Like when people ask me for advice and they're like, 
you know, I can't write, you know, or they, or they debate, should I quit my job or something? And I'm always like, no, your job is part of the plan. <laughs> your job is the plan. Like, don't think of it as two separate things. Don't think of it yeah. as I have to do one or the other. You have to come up with a plan so you can write. And maybe if that job isn't letting you write, then you got to come up with a new job. Right. right. But if you get a sweet consultant gig where you can yeah. make a pretty good supplemental income, not just wait until they throw you out. Right? I, and that's what I did. And that's what I did. So I I started at that job in like the year 1999, 2000. And as things went on with altered and stuff, I was like, well, when they fire me eventually, when they, th- when they get rid of <laughs> me, I'm a consultant. <laughs> yeah, I will, maybe then I'll start full time. And then nine years later, we finally, it, I, I thought I, that job would last a year or two. Um, and it lasted, it ended up lasting nine years. And that's when I went full time at writing. So it took, it took a long time before I went full time writing. That is good advice for a lot of people. Cause I mean, most people trying to get into it, especially younger people, you know, you always read, this is it, you know, this is my, <laughs> I'm going to break in. This is my career trajectory. And the fact that you just said 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that takes time. That's true. Too. Yeah. Good point. It definitely takes 10 years. And then when I first started full time, I had some rough first couple of years. I mean, I had, I had a couple of years where, I don't know, you go from making a good cushy six figure plus salary to, Ooh, I eked out about $30,000 this year or something like that, you know? Yeah. And it was like, woof, I guess I got to go back to work. And luckily I kind of stuck with it, but you're going to have those years too. So be prepared. Now, yeah. The good news was I kind of had in the back of my mind, I was going to quit that day job. So I had been stacking away money for, for all the whole time. I was like, we were there living lean and just like, I know I'm going to have those years. So in some ways, it, it hasn't been like till now, like which is now like 14 years later that I even think, eh, I wish I had a little bit more money, you know, to just <laughs> but it definitely is a thing that whatever that day job is and stuff like that, the plan is bigger than just writing. The plan has to yeah. be lifestyle and everything else. You have to have factor all that in. And if you don't, you're only doing yourself harm, I think, because you're going to either loathe it or you're going to have to quit just for survival unless you can go 10 years with like living out of your car or something I, you know it's just it's or if you're stephen king putting out like two novels a year and i know people that do that too that just work they they within the self-publishing world that they put out like six novels a year they literally mm, put out six yeah. novels a year and they go to every book convention and stuff like that to eke out not a hundred thousand dollars but maybe forty thousand dollars right, yeah. <laughs> or something like that and, you know, I say with musicians, I'm like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of avenues out there where you can be a professional musician. You're not going to be the next, you know, great rock star or whatever, but you can make a living, eke out a living doing what you love to do. And if you can do that, that's pretty much success right there. That's, that's right. That was literally my goal for success the entire time of writing. I was like, if I can just do writing and that's it, and that somehow pays my bills and I don't have to worry about anything else. That's success. That is my bar for success. That's all I cared about. It's yeah. that. That that's it. Um, that's cool. More. So on that note, when we got together that one time, you were telling me about some of the scripts that you had worked on selling into like the Hollywood system. So mm-hmm. you know, not the independent world. I mean, oh, there's you guys dated before. We did a couple of times without me. Okay, yeah. Yeah. sorry, that's fine. We went to a okay. Red Lobster. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you sons of bitches. I'm out of here. <laughs> 
We had this. We shared a shrimp's feast. <laughs> we're we're writing about it right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, you were saying just the fact that there's uh you know not everyone is going to write the next Spielberg movie or whatever like the huge hit is but you can make a career writing scripts that will never get made. Absolutely, and it, it's kind of a good segue because after I went full time and after I had those tough years, maybe two or three years in, I ended up in the WGA. Hmm. And it was good news, bad news. Because I, first of all, the one thing we haven't mentioned is I live in Maryland. I never went to LA. Part of that was the work from home thing and you know, yeah. still doing that. Um, was that really limiting? Uh, uh, not going to LA? Yeah. I would I would have done so much better had I gone to LA screenwriting wise. I know it. I can I can tell you that when I used to go to meetings, and I don't know, maybe it was because I wasn't from LA, but when I used to go to my generals, when I used to go to my pitches. I was really, really good at those meetings. Like I, I did really good. I think it might have been because I was disconnected a little bit. Um, okay. Maybe because I was used to a corporate world or something like that. I, I don't know. I was just going to say that. I mean, that's a developed skill that yeah. I'm assuming a lot of writers don't have. Yeah, I, I was just used to being. I was a, I was a team lead in software, so I was just used to like, okay, I'm at the whiteboard. I'm bleeding this thing. Okay, what are we doing this week? <laughs> and what are we doing? I, and I wouldn't say I did that in in those meetings, but still. I had the ability, if it was time for my turn to come, I was able to kind of like say, okay, let's, let's get up at the whiteboard. Let's take these markers out. Let's, let's see what we're doing. Yeah. And I just know every time I came back from there and I was flying home, I was like, yeah, there's this alternate universe where I would have done very, very well here. But it's, you know, I, I don't really lament that because I kind of love the fact that I stayed here uh, mm -hmm. and I never mm -hmm. went there because I have all these other great things. And again, part of the plan, it's just like the day job. I might've not liked it there. I might've grown to resent it. I might've become a different person. There's all kinds of reasons. And in general, I stayed here to work the day job in some ways, even though I was mostly working from home. I did have to travel to New York sometimes. But then in 2009, I also had a kid. It, it was just, I was older at that point. I was just like, I'm not going to LA. I'm staying here. You know, it's just, if, if for some reason, somebody offered me a truck of money or something, I might right. be like, oh yeah, I'll go. Um, but I wasn't going to go out there. So, so anyway, yeah, I do think, I definitely think if you want maximum success, go there. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's changed a little bit because what happened during COVID was everything became remote. Everything became remote. Yeah. So even the people there are doing the same meetings I'm doing. And suddenly I had a ton more meetings after 2000. Like I was, oh, yeah. I did, I did more pitch meetings in the last four years than I did my previous 20 years of screenwriting just because every other one would be like, oh, you want to do a pitch? When can you get here? And I'd be like, eh, maybe two months from now when I do all my <laughs> other generals, but I'm not coming yeah. this week. You know, now it's this afternoon. Now it's like, when do you want to have me? And it's like, hey, about Friday. Okay, Friday. So I, I did more pitch meetings, more general meetings in the last five years than I did my previous 20. That's good, right? I mean, ultimately, yeah. that's, that's yeah. awesome. It's an amazing sort of scale of efficiency now, you know, that's Absolutely. opened up. From Especially Absolutely. when you're in something that's a numbers game. Do you yeah. find it uh, as easy or successful to pitch remotely versus in person? I do. I do. I I, I, I kind of prefer it in some ways. Now, I, oh, yeah. tell you, I tell you the one advantage that it has is once we went to Zoom, it just sort of became okay to have props a little more. Uh -huh. So okay. I would do slideshows. Um, huh. Juggling. Did you juggle? Juggle. I, I've juggled before. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's better in person. Like yeah, just true. start grabbing their their Oscar off the wall and you're you know, <laughs> like, no. uh, uh, 
but but yeah, I I started to make slideshows and stuff to accompany my pitches. People do pitch decks and stuff like that now, and it became the norm as opposed to like if you did that back in the day, it was like mm, you're scared. <laughs> you walk in with your projector and be like, here, I'm just going to set this up here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, it always felt like it felt like you weren't confident back in the day, and they were kind of advised not to do it. And also, it was like. Here's some Xerox copies to hand out. It was just a little weird and clunky. Yeah. But now it's just like, hey, I got a slideshow. Oh, great. And then I can I can kind of build my pitch around the slides and make little punch lines based on the slides and stuff like that. <laughs> so I actually much prefer the pitches I do now to the pitches I did back before then. To say if it's more effective or not, it's hard to say. In my experience, pitches are rarely um, effective <laughs> or they rarely get you work. Um, yeah. It's it's definitely like a one out of 10 kind of scenario at best. You know, if huh. you do 10 of them, maybe you'll get one gig. And that's probably where I'm at if I did the math. So, uh, Aaron, you were saying, though, about, uh, I guess, writing scripts or selling scripts that never get made. How how does that work? Or what's the, the angle on that? Or how where does the money come in from the other 48 pitches that don't yeah. <laughs> become? <laughs> yeah. So there's a ton of free work. Like those 48 pitches are just dead. There, there are no money in that. All those meetings, dead money, you know, all this mm-hmm. stuff. But of those pitches, I've done a bunch of things that were bought as pitches. And basically what that means is, hey, we're going to hire you to write this script. That's what it means. So we're going to give you this much money to write the script. Usually there are steps in the deal. They're usually three steps. It's funny. They got away from steps. And then the recent strike, now they're bringing it back. Mm. It, it used to be that the norm was a right. You get to write it the first time. You get one rewrite and you get at least a polish. And almost always you would get through all those steps. Sometimes it would take two years to get through all those steps, but you would get paid for each one of those. Okay. And just to give you a feel, it's like original script might be, it depends. It depends on what they budget. Like I did a lot of TV movies. So those were budgeted more like at 50,000. They give me 50,000 to write the script because it was a TV movie. But like for altered or something for a feature, they were like $90,000 they'd give you Mm. for, for that. Um, and then the rewrite would be less. It would be like 25 or 30 Which or edit, something Editing, like essentially. Yeah. yeah. And then the polish would be like $12,000 or something. So they keep getting less and less as you go. But all in, that's, I mean, that's pretty good money. It's great. If I get yeah. one of those, if I got one of those a year and then all the other side hustles, I'm doing great. I'm doing yeah. great. And that's why, you know, if I do 60 and get three, you know, if I do 60 over the course of three years, mm-hmm. maybe I right. can survive with side hustles mm-hmm. and other residuals and stuff like that. And and that's kind of how I've lived. <laughs> that is how I've lived. You know, I do I do sixty pieces of free work, and then I get three pieces of actual paid work. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a two or three year period, maybe that's enough with all the other little grabs I'm doing here and there. But my point being, a lot of those pitches that they hire me for, they're paying me. That's the cheapest amount of money they're paying. You know, because once they decide to green light it, then they're up to ten million dollars or twenty million dollars or. You know, I've I've never worked on anything that's like a hundred million dollar movie. Like I've never worked mm-hmm. on the blockbuster level. Like most of my stuff is either horror movies or kids movies or action or something like that. That's kind of like I'd say twenty million or less. I probably sold a couple specs, like the Western, for example, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is probably a thirty million dollar, fifty million dollar movie. It never got made. Right. Um, but most of the stuff I work on is slightly lower budget. But you get paid for those, you work, they give you notes. And then eventually, usually you're done your job and they're like, oh, now we're trying to get an actor. Sometimes they'll hire other people to rewrite things. Um, sure. I had a project I sold over the last couple of years and it was bought and it was a feature. 
and I did two rewrites on it, got paid good money. They renewed my option. And then I got a message, oh, we're bringing in another writer to turn it into a TV pilot. And I, it's funny because I, for some reason, I, I think they accidentally sent me like his contract or something. <laughs> I can't remember what happened, but he was getting paid a lot more than I was for one. Oh, um, but he did several steps. Um, he had, he had like four or five steps over the course of time. So they really tried to make it a TV pilot. <laughs> and then ultimately it fell back into my possession. So it was never made. So mm-hmm. it's all this work. They probably spent upwards of, I don't know, $600,000 on this project and they just never made it, you know, never wow. became anything. That's wild. What was the biggest thing you sold or were hired to write? Um, money wise? Uh, like concept wise or budget wise. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, there are things like, the Western thing that that's concept wise, that would have been the biggest movie ever made. That guy wasn't even close to making a movie. Like even when I hop in, mm. I'm like, he's not going to make it. He's not going to yeah, make like, it. I'll take your money, but I'll, I'll take your $10,000. <laughs> the funny thing is I had another, another very similar story kind of close to the same time. I had this run of like four different scripts that I wrote all at the same time that all got optioned or sold. And they were like my first one probed, altered, uh, quicker than the eye was what that one was called. And then I had this other one. There were like two more at the same time I'd have to think about. But then there was this other one called that did get made called Adventures of a Teenage Dragon Slayer. And Adventures of a Teenage Dragon Slayer was kind of my, um, it was dunge- it was very Dungeons and Dragons heavy. So if I can remember even what it's about, it was a kid's movie. It was kind of made like Goonies. Basically, it was about kids who play Magic the Gathering Mm-hmm. And they realize that that's based on reality kind of thing. And they, there's kind of like this whole thing going on in their town with potions and, and a dragon and all this kind of stuff. I can see that being a thing. Yeah. And I wrote it as like a $100 million movie. And this guy optioned it. He found it on a website. I used to have a website with log lines. Like, here are my available movies, you know, and he found <laughs> it. And he was like, I live in Albuquerque and I want to produce a movie. Mm. Um, I think I have some backers. He paid me really good money for it. But he made the movie for like $200,000. Oh. oh. And the weird thing is he didn't really change the script or anything. He just tried to pull it off. And it shows, um, you know, it's <laughs> it's a movie that probably needed $30 million, $20 million, 10. Yeah. But he, he pulled it off for whatever, 200 300 whatever he did it for. But he got like Leah Thompson to be in it and Wendy Malick. Wow. I, I, I was really impressed of what he did with $200,000. But I mean, yeah. if you watch that movie, you'd probably be like, oh, this is a, you know, three-star movie or four-star. Because again, nobody <laughs> cares. It only right. costs two hundred thousand dollars. They right. assume it costs twenty million dollars, but when I watch it, I'm quite impressed as a filmmaker that what he pulled off for that amount of money for a kids' movie. So anyway, I have things like that that were meant to be much bigger, and they just they ended up being kind of cheaper. I have another movie that I wrote called Santa Hunters, which was made by Nickelodeon. Oh, that was Blair Witch with Santa Claus essentially, and and when I wrote it. I kind of expected it to be made for $20 million. Yeah. And there was a movie that came out as funny that sold right around the same time. And I thought I was dead called Christmas Chronicles. That eventually uh, it was, it's on Netflix with Kirk mm-hmm. Russell. Yep. Oh, yep. Right yeah. Yep. We saw and it, it sold as a spec called 1224, uh, like right around the time, like mine was going out and that one was going out. Does he end up in jail in that? Does that I, like Santa ends up in jail or which one am I thinking of? I think he I like might end up thing. in jail for, for a moment. You might be thinking of, because honestly, I think this is a little bit where I got my idea from. There was an Amazing Stories episode where Santa oh, comes up. Amazing video. Stories. What a Ooh. great throwback. Big fan. And mine was a little like that. Mine was like, kids try to find Santa. 
they basically knock them out or essentially or take them out of the game, then they have to kind of help them back. So I could see why you'd why you'd say that. And Christmas Chronicles is probably even more so inspired by that if you watch it. So so anyway, I was thinking mine was like Goonies. It kind of had a little bit of edge to it. It was all found footage. You know, it was a found footage kids movie with mm. Santa Claus. Uh, um, interesting. And Nick, Nickelodeon called me and they were like, this is literally what they said. They said, this is the best script we've ever gotten from the outside that we've ever seen. We never make scripts from the outside, but you nailed the Nickelodeon voice. And I was like, You're like uh, that, yes. Yes. I did. Yeah. And yeah. I, they went on to be great partners with me. So I did a bunch of rewrites on that. For, the first thing you have to do when you rewrite a movie for Nickelodeon, you have to cut it from like 110 pages to like 70 pages. So oh, to, wow. And, and preserve the story. So it's just mm. like, you know, so I shrunk it down to like 70 minute movie. But then after that, because whatever I, I had that Nickelodeon voice, they hired me for several different movies that had. It had sci-fi or fantasy or something in it. If it felt a little like an 80s Amblin movie, they would usually call me to punch it up or pitch on it or something like that. So it became one of my best partnerships um, career-wise was for a few years, I I would do a lot of work for them. And they really kept me in business. They were my primary employer for several years that I worked professionally. And I loved it. I mean, I I thought it was great. We're going to get a Double Dare horror movie. Double Dare horror movie. I wish. That'd be great. Last night at the Double Dare. They, they did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's funny. There's a moment on your uh, website. So just go to jamienash.net. But uh, <laughs> at the bottom, you have all the sort of movie posters there in a, in a, a loose sort of carousel-ish kind of thing like that. But it's like scrolling across, you have like this zomb- uh, zombie skateboarder with a GoPro eating entrails oh, right yeah. next to Santa Hunters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep, yep. And altered in Seventh Moon next to Tiny Christmas. That's right. That's Big right. adventures come in small packages. Yep. yep. I like <laughs> that you can't be pinned down. I like no, it no. too. And, and really, it, the funny thing is, because, you know, I've written a lot of action and stuff in adventure movies, like I said, like the Western, mm-hmm. but it really has come down to mainly just horror and kids movies is what's been produced. Mm. Um, I've been paid for other things. I've been hired for other things. But of the ones that have been produced, it's those two. And there's there's little else like like there are other things that kind of I made on my own or something like that. But uh-huh. uh, those are those are pretty much the ones with money behind it. They're really produ- produced things. Here's your log line. Screenwriter sends the wrong script to the wrong place and oh, chaos right. ensues. Ex- exactly. Here's my Nickelodeon movie about kids eating entrails. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest part about it is like when I have meetings, the two sides really don't get it. The kids movie side, I never find anybody that's like, oh, American Werewolf in London was my favorite movie or something. I never, <laughs> I would think you would because. Yeah, right. I could see myself. That'd be working. you, right? Yeah, it would be me. And I could work in kids in the kids television. Like I but get they it. Pre- like really live and breathe kids movies and television. Yeah. Like when I tell my movies, uh, 99.9% of the time, it's like, mm, I don't watch those horror movies. I can't do it. You know, <laughs> and the kids movies people don't, or the horror movie people don't watch that stuff at all. You know, they're not, yeah. they're not interested. Unless they have kids and they're going to drop. Unless they have kids. And even yeah. then they're probably, yeah, they're even not. So I've never really cross pollinated. I've never met a single person that was like, oh, I watch those kids movies or the kids movie person. Like, oh, I love horror movies. They're my favorite. Which ones have you made? You know, it's <laughs> never happened. It's funny because like novel wise, because I do write novels, that's kind of where I exist. It's kind of this quirky, weird kind of mix of old genres. You know what uh-huh. I mean? That's kind of that side. I find there, and, and this is true of 
horror comedies in, in the film world too. I find they're hard sells these days. Like, you know, these days they kind of want something that, oh, we want a kid's show, but just a scary kid show, you know, or something like that. <laughs> when it gets a little quirky and funny, you know, I guess everybody's opinion of what's funny and what's silly is that that's always a danger when you're trying to sell something. Sure. sure. It's always like, oh, this isn't funny. This I don't get it. It's not funny <laughs> Especially if it's like tone related, you know, it's tone Absolutely. and delivery. And that's so much of what it is, you know, and how. When I write novels, it's all tone and delivery related. Like, I'm like, oh, I want to try this tone. And it's like, no, just write something straight down the middle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, do that. And I'm like, well, then I'll write a screenplay if I'm going to do that. I, I right. want to do this enough. All right. Two more things I want to know. You said you do script consulting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the amount of scripts you read, how many people come to you with good scripts versus bad scripts? And are the bad scripts salvageable? Uh, it's a it's a good question. It's it's funny because I I try to keep my head out of like, will they ever sell this? Because the real answer is most of us won't sell anything. Like even I, I, <laughs> I think I'm good. And I've Great. done this for I've I have over 100 screenplays under my belt. And I've studied it. And I know, you know. I'm not going to like the thing I'm writing now in my mind. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to sell this. What are, who am I full <laughs> on? This isn't going to sell. So I try to keep that out of it. I just try to say, how is this script the best version of what it could be? I also try to stay out of like commercial kind of decisions. I, I might give them a sure. little hint that they ask for it, but you know, I'm, I'm not the one to tell them, Oh, nobody wants vampire movies or something. You know, I'm not going to, I right. would never really say that. I think nobody Nobody knows what they want until they see it. So just write the the best version of whatever you've got. I'm constantly writing things people tell me you shouldn't write. And usually they're right, but sometimes they're wrong. So back to your question, how many are unsalvageable is a question. There are percentages that it's not so much that the scripts are unsalvageable. It tends to be that the writers are very, very, very early in their journey yeah, or don't necessarily have a process laid out for them that they're going to get better. That's that's how I would put it. Mm, so it's, yeah. it's more about the writer. I imagine if someone is coming to you as a script consultant, they have to be coming in with some confidence because they're paying you. Yeah. So this isn't just like a, well, what do you think of this sort of thing? I don't know exactly how I feel about this. Like, I, I don't do too much introspection about it, but I'm a little bit more expensive than because there's a lot of options now. You mm-hmm. can get you can go to Coverfly and get a right. $30 an hour reader to do read your script at $75, $90, whatever it is, and give you a rating and a quick paragraph. For me, I'm going to read your script twice. I'm going to mark it up. I'm going to sit around, think about it. I'm going to Zoom with you. I'm going to sit around, think about it. I, I approach it like you're my co-writer. And there's almost never, ever, ever going to be a script. I'm like, this is good. Go <laughs> forth, make money. Okay. Um, and I think, I do think there are some writers who go into getting their script read just so somebody will say that. They'll be like, sure. it's great. You need to get this out there. Yeah. I do think some people submit. I, I used to joke about it on Twitter. I said, I'm offering a new service that if you pay me $300, I'll just say your script is great. <laughs> and send me $300 in your script. And uh, I do think there are people that secretly that's what they want. The people that come to me, I don't really think that's what they want. I don't know. I think they pony up more money because they don't want that. Okay. I, I I find a lot of the people, this isn't totally answering your question. I think the split, I'll, I'll, I'll give you your answer and then I'll go back to my thread. <laughs> I think the split is, I think there's probably 25% that are in the ballpark of being 
that may one day have some business. 25 might even be a little high that they eventually get to that 25%. Let's say the other 75%, and honestly, most of my scripts are in this camp too, are not going to do any business. It's just not going to happen. I'm more rating it on craft and things like that, whether the writer's ready, whether they're at the point where it's time to do business and stuff like that. And they're usually the top 25%. Um, A lot of my writers are not at the point. They haven't put in the, they haven't written the 12 scripts that I wrote before I sold quicker than the eye or whatever. And there's four scripts that all kind of went out and sold. They're not there yet. They're still four or five scripts in and they need about six more and they're getting better, but it really does take some time to, to get it all in place. And then what I was going to say is the way I came about consulting is very backwards. People were asking me to read. And at some point somebody said, can I pay you? And I thought about it and I'm like, I guess. And they're like, they basically put it this way. They said, how much would it take for me to pay you to make it worth your time? And I thought about it and I said, okay, it's this. And I did it. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I could just put that on my website. So when people come and ask me this, I I was actually kind of using it. Like when people just randomly came and asked me, Mm -hmm. I'd say, well, I do this for a living. See my website. (laughs) You know, it was kind of a way to get rid of people in some way. I kind of put it up as a defense. And then people started to pay me. And that became an okay side hustle, um, especially during the pandemic, when I was basically hardly anything was coming in and nothing was really happening. And at this point, I've kind of become a regular at it. I just do a lot of it. But what I was going to say is, I think writing is very lonely. Um, if you don't know that writer's group, if you don't know that zoetrope, I think a lot of people just need somebody to talk to. I feel like the biggest value is the writer therapy of it all. Just being a sounding board? Yeah, be a sounding board just to sit down. Is there anything uh, come across your plate that has just like blown you away? Like this is a great script or this person's an incredible writer. I'm trying to think. Uh, My biggest surprise is I'd say no, that nothing's ever come across that I was like. And and honestly, I've been reading scripts for like 20 some years. And this is I think there's more a me issue than (laughs) the script. Yeah, Um, I don't think I know it or something. I, I don't know if I. Doesn't say. Do you have perspective on it when you I, see I so do. much? I don't think like, I know it. Good point. So it's not so much that I I've seen it and I dismissed it. I just don't know that I know it because I've been reading scripts since 1998, and <laughs> I've I've probably read thousands at this point. And you said turn it, of the exactly. century. <laughs> and I don't know that I've ever I could answer that question for any of the scripts I've read. There are a few that I'll read and I'll be like, oh, this writer, oh they. Oh, they got it. You know, and I'm just like, oh, yeah. okay. And there are a handful. I mean, they're probably less than 10 of those mm. in, mm. in all those years. But there probably have been 10 where I was like, I was like, whoa, this this is somebody, this person's and usually I'm right, like when I get those. So that's yeah. that happens. It happens. And it's usually less like the script and more the writer. Like I can just tell from yeah. the writing. It just has an energy. There's something. Isn't that like the authenticity the, thing you were the, talking about before? Like it's something about the, the way authenticity, they write. It's, it's usually less about the script. It's usually less like, this is going to be the best movie ever. It's usually more like, oh, this writer, they're going to, oh, they're going to be on a TV show. They're going to do something. They're going to, and and usually, cool. like I said, those are, I'm right about. What genre sent you to the most? That's a good, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's funny. I've never really thought about this because I just kind of take them as I get them and I don't really do uh-huh. any, any thinking. So you're not like, oh God, another period piece drama like comedy. no my mine are kind of all over the place like like yesterday i consulted on a hallmark movie i've done like two hallmark movies in the last couple of months 
You've written two Hallmark movies in the past couple months. I, I've written Hallmark movies, but I've consulted on a couple in the last mm-hmm. in the last couple months. So is that somebody who actually already has no, a deal? No, and they're like, "Hey, I'm I'm no. doing this," or just this no. is the tone of the type of. But movie I will that say, I'll, I'll bookmark that. Well, I'll answer that now, and then get back to the other one. Um, I have had people that had deals, and some of them very, very big deals that have come to me for a look before they sent it to the big person. Once you have a Hallmark deal. Sure. Don't you have like a hundred Hallmark deals? I, I it's honestly a um, it's a space that I tried to break into. When I say tried, I wrote a script because so many of my Nickelodeon producers were also Hallmark producers. Like like that was really their primary gig. They were doing like seven of these a year, and I just saw it as a way to make money. Yeah. And I thought I could write it. But the one thing, and I'm not dismissive of this at all. Like the one thing I've learned about myself as a writer, I can love writing anything. Like there is no, like when they come to me, I'm almost embarrassed when they say, do you think you can write this? Cause I'm like, I know I can, and I'll actually enjoy it once I get into it. Like I, as much Mm -hmm. as we could dismiss Hallmark, I would love, I'd love to write. I'd like be passionate about, I'd be all in, I'd be watching all the Hallmark movies and doing it. (laughs) It's, it's just, I think that's something about me as a screenwriter. I've realized about myself. Like there are things that people come to me that you would, on the surface, you'd be like, oh, this horror guy, he's not going to like this thing. And even if mm-hmm. I don't at first, I'll I'll learn to love it. I'll learn really quickly to love it. Well, um, that speaks to you as a writer in general, just yeah, someone who loves the craft. Yeah, it's it's a surprising discovery that I've found about myself over the years is that you could literally come to me with anything. And I, I would be as passionate. Sometimes I'd be more passionate about that than the thing maybe I did hmm. 50 versions of. So, so I do love that. But yeah. The the biggest surprise as a consultant is the couple times I've been contacted with people with kind of big credits, kind of big projects. There's one that just kind of still blows my mind that they came to me before they sent it, and they were they didn't know me at all. They were just like, I read your book, you know, I I thought I'd have you check it out before I send it to like biggest person in Hollywood. I'm like, whoa, this mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, and I don't think they took any of my notes, by the way. Uh, I don't. I don't quite know why it came to me. In some ways, they were super friendly, super cool. But I was just like, it's kind of an honor to, that they even asked. But yeah, there's been a few people that are profe- established professionals that have come to me for for certain things. Some that are like changing careers, almost like hmm. like I was on this TV show for all these years, and now it's looking gone. to get an IT. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> how, do, how do I write a sort in Java or something? <laughs> but yeah, it's. It, it, th- those are always like fun when I, or a lot of actors, a lot of actors like, Hey, I'm on this sitcom. And, oh yeah. I know you. I watched that sitcom. Oh uh, yeah. Huh? Trying to oh, wow. know, write a pilot. My agent thinks I can write a pilot or something like that. And they're, they're always fun to to work on with those people. Like they're I'm always humbled and excited to like help people like that out. Cause I learned something from them. Sure. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Ken, you look like you had to move. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned the book. So you have a book. So Save the Cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to, first of all, for people who are listening, both of them, you want to give a little on what is Save mm-hmm. the Cat, Save the Cat, the idea of it. And would you have saved a dog instead if you had to go, the opportunity to go yeah, back? Yeah. Well, so <laughs> Save the Cat is a book by Blake Snyder, uh, the original. The original book is by Blake Snyder. Who he wrote this book back in like the mid 2000s, like 2005, 2006. So the book, the book was a screenwriting book. Uh, and at the time, 
it, it over the years it's become the number one screenwriting book. So if you're a new screenwriter, people mm-hmm. are going to be like, "Go get Save the Cat." It is by far the best selling screenwriting book. I don't know if all all time necessarily, but looking, I've got it somewhere around this room. Yeah, I have mine. So I think mine's over there. I have a couple of versions of it. And uh, to put it in a nutshell, it's about a lot of different things. It teaches you how to write a log line. It has pitch stuff in the back, but the main thing it's known for is the 15 beats. And the 15 beats are basically an outline format that says, fill in these 15 things chronologically and you'll have a movie, essentially. And mm-hmm. it, you know, so okay. it starts with opening image, fill in your opening image, and it gives you a direction how to do it. Set up, set up your character in the ordinary world. Here are the things you need to do for that. Theme stated. Then a catalyst happens, something shocking happens and sends the hero into the world of the story. Um, so it's stuff like that. And you mm. fill out 15 of these, you have okay. a story. So it's a story template, essentially. But the and book's also not stuffy. It's not from like a prestigious writer. It's very like a commercial perspective. In that way, it was, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but it was kind of a breath of fresh air at the time. Because yeah. the, the book I got in the 90s that people were like throwing at me was Robert McGee's book. And yeah, Robert story. McGee's book is story. And it's like really thick and it's written like he's trying to show you how smart he is. Like it's it's like a professor's <laughs> book. And it's a good book. It's, it's yeah. it, There's a lot of stuff I think Blake took from that book and adapted in his own breezy, goofy, fun style. Mm-hmm. But his book is very breezy, goofy, fun. And it feels like you can read it in a day or two. Where story, I still haven't finished reading it. It's like <laughs> thick and it's very dense. And it's, I don't want to say, but maybe it's pretentious, a little bit pretentious. Yeah, um, right. I mean, that I've never read it and I'm never going to meet that guy. So if you say it's pretentious, yeah, yeah. it sounds it's, pretentious. It's, I mean, I think most people, I think that's kind of his shtick is he's like the professor. You know, he's the smartest guy. He yells, right. he's a kind of a curmudgeon that yells at people in his class and stuff like that. Um, oh. But then when Blake came, Blake was more like, his brand was more like, let's roll up our sleeves. We can do this together. This isn't so hard. Mm. This is fun. Come on, let's do it. You know, that was his brand. And that's Save the Cat. Now, it's funny because his brand kind of gets interpreted because his style of writing is like, it's kind of flippant in some ways. So he has things on there like themes dated. It's always page seven. Shut up. It's seven. Just do it, you know, or something like that. And people people now <laughs> interpret that. Like when I read it, I was like, oh, it's it's Blake being Blake. He's kind of being silly and fun. And it's not. Nowadays, people are like, I do not like the didactic tone of his, you know, seven page seven. <laughs> it really why can't wasn't. it be on page eight? You know? <laughs> yeah. Why can't it be on page eight? He says. I don't like how he does that. Like he has a whole chapter where oh, he God. says like where he hates on memento. Uh, like he has a little, not a chapter, but a paragraph. And people to this day are yeah. like, I did not like how he took exception to a memento. Right. You know, it's just kind of him being conversational. Right. Like he was talking to you at the bar or something like he, he died in like 2008 or nine, another date. I always forget. And he died suddenly. He had like, I don't know if it was an aneurysm or something like that. Um, and he was in his 50s. His business partners kept the brand alive and they started to write other books. They started to do other books with other other folks. And they did a Save the Cat Rights for Novels, which is hugely, hugely successful. I don't know if it's as successful as the original, but it's it's way up there. Again, same sort of approach of relatable, it's, but template sort of here's the professional sort of So the novel to- writing book. So Blake wrote three books originally before he passed away. Um, he wrote Save the Cat, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies, and Save the Cat Strikes Back. And and really, they're all they all could be one book. Like it's kind of like, oh, yeah, like the first sure. one, the first one's a template, the second one is examples, like it's a book of examples. Like here's 
50 movies that use the template. And then the third book mm. was like some some other stuff that I thought of, you know, that I could have been in the book. The novel writing book basically just takes all of that and puts it not like for novels. You know, it's like it's like okay. it just translates it for novels. Yeah, but, but really, I think if, the brand didn't yeah. really take off until that brilliant book came out about uh, writing for TV. Yes. And then so then eventually uh, Save the Gap Rights for TV came along. And that was the one I wrote. <laughs> Oh, that, that was, was me. You? That was me. That's that's what that's why we're here. Um, actually, yeah, it'd be funny. It'd be like it'd be kind of like the Ed thing. Where we're just like, well, we're just talking about the Save the Cat. Um, so I wrote Save the Cat Rights for TV and Save the Cat uh, Beach Sheet Workbook after it. Save the Cat Beach Sheet Workbook is kind of a journaling approach to writing a Save the Cat thing that I wrote. Um, and Save the Cat Rights for TV is basically taking the approach and teaching you how to write a TV pilot. And a TV pitch. So it kind of teaches you those things. It doesn't teach you how to mm. write a season of television because they're done by writers' rooms. It's specifically oriented, like you want to be in TV. And, and people that want to be in TV have to write pilots. That's how they get jobs. That's their resume. That's their calling card. So my book is specifically focused on writing a pilot, pretty much, and a pitch, a pitch as well. Right. And um, follow your notes and you will 100% sell your pilot. Absolutely. That's what you said, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, um, is there a 30-second story on where Save the Cat comes from? Yeah, the title. The title? It's, it's really a simple thing. It's, a, it's an old phrase where, let's say you had a really grumpy, non-likable character. You would put in a Save the Cat scene where they save a cat, and then you like them because they, they care about something. Okay. So it's, it's just that's the phrase. It's called Save the Cat. Cool. And, and to your point, I think there is a book that came out recently that rejects all the Save the Cat stuff called Kill the Dog, um, which which I haven't read yet, but uh, people, it seems popular. So I'll write. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds terrible. I've would, I would never wanted to Google that. <laughs> oh, God. Well, we've been on here way too long, but uh, what are you working on now? Anything coming up? Um, I'm working on an audio drama, of all things. Um, it's a, it's mm. kind of a, I call it a supernatural thriller. It's funny. I'm not allowed to talk about it, but it comes out in like, Three weeks. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. It, it was a uh, it was a gig that I was I was on, and um, it may or may not involve some of the Blair Witch people and other things. But um, but yeah, it hasn't been officially officially announced. But I think within a week or two, it will be announced. It's a thirteen episode audio drama that has really been all consuming of me for the last couple months because I'm directing mm. it, I wrote it, I'm producing it. It's it's wow, been cool. a lot. Yeah. Is so, there um like a known brand it's under? Or is it gonna be like on th- uh, podcast form? That's that's the reason it's it's secret, I think, because it's kind of like the announcement of the podcast is sort of the announcement of the brand. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. I think that's why it's like being not known though. It's an original thing. So it'll be new. <laughs> like it's not like it's Star Wars or it's it's Marvel. <laughs> um it's nothing like that. Um and it's it's on the uh it's it's so weird talking about it like this because it's like so close, like literally next week at this time, maybe it'll be out or something. They'll announce it. Um, I don't. Obviously, you have you have your, your concerns, but this probably won't air <laughs> until yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, even then, true. even then, the way the way I'm always like this, I, I read their press release to know what to say because there is some secrecy about this one. So, um, mm. but anyway, okay. uh, cool. It's the we'll PRX that is, which is like a podcast distribution kind of company. Um, and it's through their network and it'll be like, I think it comes out March 12th. So 
If anybody listens to this, just start searching around March 12th. And if you see an audio drama, maybe (laughs) I did it. (laughs) At the end of the podcast, we always talk about where someone's from and essentially like how that brought, how that created their voice. You're from Maryland, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Catonsville, Maryland. Um, I know Catonsville. Well, awesome. I know Catonsville Um, very well. Kind of Catonsville, the border of Woodlawn and Catonsville. There's a place called Double T Diner for people that know. And I live relatively near Double T Diner. Um, If you were going out, so Aaron, you asked. If you had a studio executive coming to see you for an afternoon and you wanted to impress them, where would you take them starting midday into the night? Wow. That's a, so I think you're going to go do something and then you're going to get get a bite to eat, maybe a, a beer somewhere. I was, was going to uh, say double tea diner, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's well, still there. Yeah, but that, if that, it, do that it too, wouldn't be yeah. a bad place because they actually have a really good crab cake, which they, yeah. Because yeah. usually when you, when somebody comes in from out of town, crab cakes are the first thing on the menu, right? Right. So usually, usually try to find a crab cake for them. But yeah, so Double T wouldn't be a bad place. There's another place called GNM that's kind of close to the airport. That's kind of I I've taken people there for for crab cakes, and I'll cheat a little bit here. I'd say I'd probably take them to an Oriole game because Camden Yards is kind of amazing, and I like going to sporting events or something like that. So did someone else say that too? Yeah, I'd probably take them to Camden Yard. Camden Yards. Where would I go after that? I'm not much of a night. I'd be in bed after that. I'd be too tired to go out anywhere <laughs> else. So I don't even know. I don't even know where I'd hit. You'd send them to the Hustler Club and be like, all right, I'm to you. You go right around there. I live in Columbia, Maryland now, which isn't too far from which isn't too far from all this. It's only 15 minutes up the road. Columbia's got some good breweries now. I I might take them to Merriweather, the Merriweather district, which is kind of a new area. And it Mm -hmm. has some Yeah, behind Merriweather, right? Where they paved the parking lot. It's kind of cool. It's kind of a cool little spot. Has an ice ice rink. It has some restaurants. Um Mm -hmm. Has a really nice bookstore, has an arcade, uh, things like that. So I don't know. I think that would they would be my three things. It's also one of my favorite concert venues in the country. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Indeed. It's my favorite. Hands yeah. down. It's it's where I've seen most concerts in my life. So yeah. Um, for that reason alone. But yeah, there's nothing better than kind of a cool night at the Merriweather concert, you know, area. It's like yeah. Yeah. you're out there, you're outside, especially if you're you get a seat as opposed to the lawn. Um, and it's, it's actually very nice. My wife and I, well, before we were married and you know, we're like, we didn't have much money and we would just get cheap lawn seats all the time. And I don't remember what show it was, but there was one time when there was something we really liked and we're like, well, let's just splurge a few bucks and get a seat, you know, and get out of the lawn. And I've never looked back. (laughs) There's no way I'm going back there with the rest of the riffraff anymore. The seats are so nice there. Like it's such a, it's a totally different experience. Like. Yeah. I, when I was in college, I had a friend that was a security guard at Meriwether, and he would let me in to sit in the lawn seats. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I would always go to the lawn seats. He'd be like, come on in. And I'd go sit in the lawn seats. And I remember I took my wife to see Pearl Jam there. We saw Pearl Jam. Ooh. I'm a, I'm oh a big gosh. Pearl Jam guy. Yeah. Um, this is the last time I sat in the lawn seat. And she always remembers this. Like, she doesn't really like to go to concerts. These two guys just start fighting in front of us, like for no reason. <laughs> And no security <laughs> guards came to break it up at all. I don't know. I, this my friend was a security guard. I mean, that was his job. And That's it was, crazy. It just went on and on. Like we were watching a MMA fight. Outside of like college students, I feel like the lawn is the equivalent of like sending criminals to Australia. It's just 
this other place with everyone we don't want to do. It is not that. You were, you were at the wrong shows doing the wrong things. I was, I have an anecdote about that. So I have a buddy who, um, when I was probably 24, 25, something like that, he's like, I have a friend who needs help for uh, working security at mm-hmm. Merriweather. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, do you want to come? It's just like an hourly thing. We go, you get to go, you get to work mm-hmm. for free. You know, you get to get in yep. for free and see the show and you'll be security. You just get people at the door or whatever you wear a t-shirt. And uh, I was like, awesome. I was like, what show? He's like, oh. Pearl Jam. I was like, oh, oh my really God, bad. this is going to be the best. <laughs> I was like, yeah, right. I was yeah. already supposed to be there. I was like, yes, I'm so excited about this. And they're like, so I get there and we're all, you know, we did a little bit of stuff with watching people come through the gate. And they're like, all right, mm-hmm. for the show, mm-hmm. we're going to put you backstage. Yeah. You're going to be here. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best mm-hmm. thing ever. I was about 200 yards backstage watching a fence. Oh, oh. <laughs> like I couldn't see <laughs> anything. <laughs> I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> I spent the entire, like, literally two hours just by myself in the woods watching a fence. So I the got worst. the same opportunity once when I was like 19. Uh, my buddy was like, hey, I know someone who, you know, knows someone there and like they yeah. need people for a night. So we went and worked the Blink-182 show there in 2000. 2001 mm-hmm. something like that and same thing they're like all right you guys are stationed at the back of the lawn and we were like okay and you know there's no oversight there so we just walked up and sat on the front of the stage <laughs> watch the show yeah yeah no <laughs> it's 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 a pretty cool gig I was, I, very, I, I was very much a rule follower so i i stayed and i fucking watched that fence nerd I, I I did I did years ago I, I did the lilith fair there in the 90s oh, i remember and awesome. um i was a I was a big Sarah McLaughlin fan and I saw she's coming there this year. And I was like, let me go look at her seats. And it was like front row tickets for like 90 bucks. And I was like, wow, she's kind of fallen because most front row tickets, you know, they cost yeah. 700 bucks or something. The closer you are to her, do, yeah. does that equate to how much you're going to cry during the show? Probably, probably when the when the dogs <laughs> when the dogs come on the screen and stuff like that. Yes, um, <laughs> when she puts up the PETA commercial. Yeah, absolutely. Like, but I was just like, wow, I can. Uh, I didn't buy him though. I was like, yeah. Oh. I've, I've seen her before. I was like, uh, I'll pass. Well, cool. that's a killer day. I love it. All right. And on that note, I will actually end. Yes. <laughs> and I will remember you. <laughs> there you Thank are. you. <laughs> Should we all go full single? Yes. Let's not. All right. For real. <laughs> Thanks, though, for coming on, Jamie. It's been fun. Very cool. Yeah. Very nice meeting you. Thanks for your time, yeah, man. Sure it's thing. awesome. It was fun. I'll talk all to right. you later. Best of luck. Take care. Cool. Be good. Thank you.